0: And the thing about American Bandstand, not only Dick Clark, but the kids who were the regulars, if they didn't like you, you were dead. They, you know, didn't, you know, start applauding and going, yeah, yeah, you know, whatever. You would never make it because those those kids had a lot of pull, you know, and Dick Clark, you know, appreciated that.
1: Were you aware that you had a drinking problem?
0: I guess I really didn't want to admit it to myself, you know. He turned around right to the front row because he was in the pit. Dinner is now being served. (laughs) The David Cassidy
1: Connections with Louise Poynton. My very special guest today is American music legend Bobby Rydell, one of the first teenage idols. Bobby's first hit, Kissin' Time, made him a household name in 1959. This was followed by Wild One, Forget Him, Valari, securing an image which won millions of hearts around the world. But, as he explains in our brutally honest conversation, Bobby, who just turned 79, insists he wanted to be recognised as more than a teenage idol. He has enjoyed more than six decades of worldwide success, Frank Sinatra called him his favourite singer. Sammy Davis Jr. was a dinner guest at his house. His childhood friend Frankie Avalon and another celebrated teen star Fabian still tour today with Bobby as the Golden Boys. Bobby tells us about his early introduction at the age of five to the music of the big bands being introduced to the Beatles before they hit the big time in the United States and the first time he met Frank Sinatra. Bobby also talks movingly about his addiction to alcohol, how a double liver and kidney transplant saved his life before undergoing heart surgery. How are you?
0: I'm pretty good. How are you?
1: I'm good, thank you. Thank you so much for doing this.
0: My pleasure. Thank you, Louis.
1: I love your hat.
0: (laughs) Oh, that's a, a, a football team here. Yeah. It's called, they're called the Philadelphia Eagles. And I've been a fan since 1963 of the football team. Yeah, it's a great city, you know, we call it the city of brotherly love, you know. Oh, and I love uh, that. You know, I, but, you know uh, I was born and raised in an area called South Philadelphia.
1: How important was it for you growing up in South Philadelphia and having the foundation of the family?
0: I'm Italian, uh, my real name being Robert Louis Ritterelli. And I grew up in South Philadelphia with my mother's parents, my grandparents, you know, who came over from Italy. And they came from a place in Italy called Abruzzi. And uh, I was born and raised 2423 South 11th Street with my mom and my dad and my grandparents. And uh, it was uh, absolutely wonderful. You know, a lot of love, a lot of warmth and a lot of respect, you know. Within the family.
1: Did that really help form the type of person you became, especially with all the adulation that came your way as as a teenager?
0: Yes, Louise. Yeah, I think that all stems from, you know, my family and my upbringing and the Italian heritage. And like I said earlier, the love, warmth and respect, you know, that we had in the family. So that, that definitely was a big impression on me at a very, very early age.
1: There can be few better feelings, I imagine, for a teenage boy than to be adored by so many young girls <laughs> having their face you know, plastered over teenage magazines, everyone screaming. I mean, you described in your fascinating book, Teen Idol on the Rocks, how you were thrust into the limelight. But was that always what you wanted to be because you had a passion for drumming?
0: Uh, when I was five years old, my father loved big bands, you know, like Benny Goodman and Tex Beneke and Artie Shaw and Count Basie. So he took me when I was five years old to see the Benny Goodman band. I'm five years old. I didn't know who Benny Goodman was, but my father wanted me to experience that music. I was enthralled. I was enthralled, you know, playing songs, as we say now, you know, from the American Songbook, Uh, you know, to go in there and see four trumpets and four trombones and five saxophones and big piano bass drums, a rhythm guitar. And I said to my father, boy, this is great, Dad. I said, but there's one guy up there that I really like. I don't don't know his name, but he's the drummer. And that guy was Gene Krupa, who was the original drummer for the Benny Goodman Band. And because of Gene Krupa, I started playing, playing drums at a very early age. But Going back even further, when I was three years old and my dad was in the service overseas, of course, my mom and dad would write to one another. And my mom would write, the baby's always singing. The baby's always singing. And to this day, Louise, I still have the letter in my possession. And my father wrote back, my mother's name was Jenny. And my father wrote back, well, who knows, Jenny, maybe one day we'll have a star in the family.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Was that something you always wanted to um, be? Did, did you want to be recognized as a drummer? Did you want to be a star?
0: I never really thought about it. You know, uh, I, I used to watch TV at like three years old and, you know, try and impersonate people that, you know, that I, I saw and, and sing different tunes at that very early age. Later on, at five years old, drums came into my life because of Gene Cooper. But if I had any talent within me whatsoever, when my dad, of course, came home and I was like about seven or eight years old, my father would take me to nightclubs and he would ask the club owner, is it okay if my son got up to sing a few songs and do some impersonations? So I would get up at that very, very early age, sing a song, do some impersonations and people would applaud I thought to myself, gee, what a wonderful feeling. All I have to do is do this and they do that. That, That's tremendous. And the only reason I'm in the business today is because of my dad. He was my champion.
1: He believed in your talent, didn't he?
0: Oh, absolutely. Absolutely, yeah. And my mother, my mom would say to my father, uh, his nickname was Ott, O-double-T. My mom would say, Ott, what are you doing with this kid? He's only seven, eight. My father said, Jenny, he's got talent. And my mother said, well, what else are you going to say? He's your son. <laughs> you <know? laughs> but like I said, he, he was the one who started me.
1: So your mother wasn't as encouraging as, as your father?
0: Not at all. Not at all. No, no, no not at all but you know later on in my life when things started happening for me oh she's very very proud and my father traveled with me all over the world i would be on stage whatever song i was singing you know if it happened to be one that was a particular favorite of my dad i could hear him in the audience way to go bob yeah (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I think he really. I think he really was my biggest fan.
1: When all the teenage adulation happened, were you prepared for it?
0: I, I, yes, I believe so, because doing that stuff, you know, like seven, eight years old, it was kind of like my vaudeville, and it prepared me for things that were going to happen later on in my career. That was a a great stepping step for me at a very early age, you know, doing all of those nightclubs that my dad took me to.
1: Can you still do those impressions you spoke about just now?
0: One guy that I worked with, and it was Red Skelton. One of his characters was Clem Kediddlehopper. <laughs> red was to my left and he overheard and he started coming back at me as Clem. <laughs> and from that many shows that i uh, that i did i was one of the first that imitated one of his characters and you know other people that i have worked with um Uh, Like uh, Jerry Lewis. Agni, you know, all right, all right, you, mm," you know, impressions that everybody else.
1: (laughs) Did you ever actually observe teen idols who followed you and think, oh, I know exactly what they're going through?
0: No, because, you know, because they almost kind of went through what I went through. And what Sammy Davis Jr. went through when he was a young kid working with his uncle, the Will Maston Trio, the thing I worry about today is the YouTube and people like, you know, Justin Bieber, 15 years old, overnight, he's making millions of dollars. I don't know how you handle that at a very, very young age. It's got to be, it's got to be extremely tough. My God, you know, God, I remember when I first worked at Copacabana, I was there for two weeks making $3,000 a week. I'm 19 years old, $3,000 a week? Are you kidding me? I can help my mom, I can help my dad, I can help my grandparents, you know. Uh, all right, I was 19, which doesn't make any, 15, 19, but that kind of money, I don't know how you handle it. God bless them, you know. I hope they all do very, very well, and they keep their heads together.
1: When I was reading your book. yes. When, when I was reading that, there were so many parallels with David's life. You
0: know? Oh, with Cassidy?
1: Yeah, so my so many parallels. At some, some wow, well, I, I think, gosh, am I reading David's autobiography or am I reading Bob? Wow, well, well, I
0: I never knew that, Louise. Yeah, that's interesting.
1: Yeah. The points that stood out with me, the adulation from a very young age, you know, he was 22, 23, still portraying a 16, 17-year-old in a television. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. Nobody
1: could look yeah. beyond yeah. the idolatry and go, hey, this guy's a really good singer. You made a very telling observation, which I found most interesting. And it's a parallel to what David Cassidy experienced in the 1970s. You said, If I had any serious issues with my teen idol identity, it was not about privacy or to pass myself off as a 17-year-old, even though I was approaching 22. My angst was about the music. I just wondered if you were hungry for better, more ambitious material, and you wanted to show to people that you were a serious singer, a serious musician, and there was more to you than singing and having girls scream.
0: Yeah, exactly right. Well, that all stems back to five years old and listening to the Benny Goodman band and playing all of those great songs from the late thirties, early forties, the American songs. But I was a big Sinatra fan. I, always, I started listening to the old man when I was 10 years old and I had the extreme good, you know good fortune of meeting him when I was 19 years old. The songs that I do are basically associated with Mr. Sinatra. Like, I've got you under my skin, uh, chestnuts that are associated with Mr. Sinatra. And I ask the people in the audience, I say, is anybody in the audience happen to be a fan of Mr. Sinatra? I tell the story when I first met him at the Copa and how wonderful he was. I like to sing one of Mr. Sinatra's chestnuts for you. And the band plays, I've got the world on a string. And and they love it. You know, they love Mm. it. Uh, You know, of course, they love the hit records as well. I just turned 79 and all of those people remember those particular pieces of music, Mm. whether it was sung by Sinatra or orchestrated with a big band. You know, it's great because uh, I get a good reaction, you know, from the people.
1: Was it important to you in your late teens, early 20s to show to people, I'm more than just a one-trick pony. There's more to me than what you just see, the image that you are sold.
0: Yeah, well, I was the youngest performer ever to work at Copa. I was 19 years old and I had two wonderful people who staged my act. There was one guy by the name of Noel Sherman who wrote all of my special material. Another guy by the name of Lou Spencer, who was originally with the Dunhills, who used to open for Danny Kay. And he staged my act. I went into the COPA and, you know, opening night was wonderful. And I think the next day or two days later the reviews came out and the reviews were tremendous. Bobby Rydell, a powder keg of talent, and so on and so forth. Wow, you know. I did a lot of other things other than, you know, the recordings, you know, my hit records, special pieces of material, so forth, so on. Uh, Matter of fact, uh, Noel Sherman wrote a special piece of material for uh, Mr. Nat King Cole, and his special piece of material was Mr. Cole won't rock and roll. (laughs) All, you know yeah all special lyrics and he also wrote i think for paul Anka a parody on a quarter to three it's quarter to three there's no one in the house except but it was a parody of you know and it was all special lyrics and so on to the tune of yeah, quarter to three yeah
1: <laughs> yeah frank sinatra regarded you as one of the greatest singers
0: you know uh like I said, I had the good fortune of being in Mr. Sinatra's company quite a few times. I got to know his son, Frank Jr. And I said to Frank Jr., we were doing a radio show in Philadelphia with a disc jockey, his name is Sid Mark, who plays nothing but Sinatra. So it was Frank Jr. and me. And during the break, I turned to Jr. and I said, Frank, I said, I just want to thank you for what you said. He said, what was that, Bobby? Ah, uh, you said something to the effect that uh, Bobby is one of the best singers, and and Sinatra Junior said, "I didn't say that. He said my father said that." <laughs> oh. <laughs> you know, no offense, no offense to you, Junior, but it's what? a hell of a lot better coming from your old <laughs> dad,
1: you <know? laughs> what, man. What What an
0: honor! Oh, for sure, yeah, for sure. The first night I met Sinatra, uh, Jules Padel, who was the boss of the Copa, and Sinatra was sitting at a table with Sammy Kahn, Jimmy Van Usen, two marvelous lyricist, songwriters, Richard Conti, a fine actor, and a great baseball player by the name of Joe DiMaggio, who mm-hmm. played for the New York Yankees, and Sinatra. And Podell said, and he talked like this, Podell, I don't you, know, you know, that kind of old voice. And he, he taps Frank on the shoulder and he says, Frank, I want you to meet the kid. Sinatra stood up with those blue eyes. He put out his right hand. He said, how you doing, Robert? Called me Robert. I said, fine, Mr. Sinatra. How are you? He says, I'm wonderful. Would you care to join us? I sat there. I didn't know. I didn't say two words. I didn't say two words, Luis. I was just enthralled take all of the stories that they are telling, music stories. Uh, and Sinatra turned to me, and he said... Uh, what do you drink, Robert? I'm 19 years old. I said, Coke. <laughs> I figured if I said or water, i get smacked in the face. You know? <laughs> but he, he took pictures. He took pictures with me and my dad and my manager at the time, a man by the name of Frankie Day. And there's one picture that I have with him that he has um, on my album, right, Copa under one of his arms and his other arm around me, on my shoulder. And mm-hmm. he writes, To Bobby. Best always, your friend, Frank Sinatra. Oh, my God. (laughs) Great. What a wonderful evening, yeah. We all know how great, you know, all of the classic songs that Mr. Sinatra recorded, but some, you know, the movies that he did, Mm -hmm. The Manchurian Candidate, His First From, From Here to Eternity, you know, Ryan's Express, you know, he did... do you remember a movie he did called Suddenly? It was a town called Suddenly. And the president was uh, coming in on a train and they, Sinatra was going to assassinate the president and they took up, uh, they, they commandeered a house near the railroad station. And uh, you know, it, it, it was a great movie, you know. Mm. He's done a lot, yeah, my God. You know, you, you talk about the talent of, uh, of Sinatra, it's just enormous. He was funny. You know, you, you see things with Dean Martin and him, they're hilarious yeah. together. Dean Martin was funnier than Jerry Lewis, for crying out loud. He had a dry sense of humour. My God, he was funny.
1: Can I just take you back to your childhood and your passion for playing drums? Can you tell us how your good friend Frankie Avalon gave you an opportunity which changed everything for you?
0: I mean, Frankie and I go back, oh my God, uh, Frank's two years older than me. I've known Frank since I was 10 years old. He was 12. He was a trumpet player, you know, and I was a drummer. Mm -hmm. And uh, he was in a band called Rocco and the Saints. And they were working at a place called Bay Shores, which was right outside of Atlantic City in New Jersey. And the drummer, Chippy Brancada, we used to call him Chippy Peters, he got sick. And Frankie calls me and he says, Bob, can you come down and fill in for Chippy? sick? You know, this, that, the other thing. So I went and I, I, I played. I played and then I, I would get up and I sang some songs and Frank and I would do stuff together. And then I go back on the drum set and play the rest of the set. After the set, a guy by the name of Frankie Day, who was a bass player with a band called Billy Duke and the Dukes. Now, I'm at that point 15 years old. And this guy, Frankie Day, whose real name was Francesco Koki, he came up to me and he said, I'd like to manage you, kid. I said, I don't know what the hell you're talking about. Talk to my father. And they talked. Uh, my father talked to him and this, that, the other thing, and we shook hands and he became my manager. And it was a great relationship for, my God, something like 20 years, you know. Uh, he was a great man, you know, uh, very, very concerned about me, my career, things that I, you know, had to do.
1: You recorded a few songs which didn't do anything until Kissing Time.
0: Correct, yeah. I uh, When I signed with Cameo, uh, I recorded three songs, and Bernie Lowe used to take the acetates, the dubs, to play for Dick Clark. And Dick, you know, would put the needle down on the acetate, the dub, and turn down three. And at that particular point, I said, well, this is not really working for me. It, it was, uh, you know, a good experience, but I was really, really happy playing drum. And then they wrote "Kissin' Time," which became my first hit, summer of 1959. And Bernie Lowe took the acetate to Dick, Dick Clark. Dick put the needle on on the, on the acetate, and he turned to Bernie Lowe, from what I understand, and he said, "That's a hit." And of course, like they say, from that day on, everything is history.
1: Are, are you aware of the group Kiss? having made... Yeah, yeah, they
0: recorded Kissing Time, yeah. It was so different, you (laughs) know, uh, because I recorded it with a group that I adored. They used to work in Wildwood, New Jersey, where my grandmother had a boarding house, and I used to stand outside, a club was called The Rainbow. And the group was called Georgie Young and the Rockin' Box, and they were phenomenal. And Georgie Young was just a a master musician. He played alto, tenor, baritone, uh, flute, clarinet, bass flute, alto flute. He was a monster musician, and he's the guy who plays the solo. His band, the Rockin' Box, they're the ones on the record. They're the ones who are playing all of the music, you know, behind me. And Georgie Young plays the alto solo, which is a great alto solo. And we recorded that, 1405 Locust Street, which was the offices of Cameo. And it was a small little studio. Dave Apple was the engineer. And we had like two Ampex tape recorders, or maybe one, I don't even remember. And we recorded in Time. Well, <laughs> well,
1: how did you feel when you went on American Bandstand, you're singing in Time and and the girls are going crazy. Can you remember how it well, uh, felt?
0: You know, oh, oh, absolutely. I mean, I was, I was enthralled. I was, I was thrilled. I was so happy, you know. And the thing about American Bandstand, not only Dick Clark, but the kids who were the regulars. If they didn't like you, you were dead. They, you know, didn't, you know, start applauding and going, yeah, yeah, you know, whatever. You would never make it. Yeah. <laughs> because those, those kids had a lot of pull, you know, and Dick, Clark, you know, appreciated that. So, I, of course, you know, Dick was very instrumental in my career, but if those kids on American Bandstand, those regulars didn't like me, I don't know where the hell my career would have been.
1: <laughs> <laughs> you must have deep affection for for that song, but do you have as much affection for the way you were marketed
0: no that i mean that never really bothered me i mean to this day lubies you know i still have the time you know to talk to the fans sit down relate stories so on so forth take pictures sign autographs you know i always have the time because if it wasn't for them there'd be no me so you know that that's very important to me in my life and uh, the way I feel about myself and my fans. There were two, two Linda Hoffmans in my life. Linda Hoffman, who was my fan club president, and then the other Linda Hoffman, who I married. I remember when my first wife passed away, a lot of the guys, you know, they would always try to set me up, you know, with someone. Being Italian, every Wednesday night we go out for dinner at an Italian restaurant. And this one girl who was a friend of one of the guys there, she said, Bobby, I met a girl who'd be great for you. I said, really? I said, what's her name? Linda Hoffman. I went, my fan club president. She said, no, it's a different Linda Hoffman. (laughs) And they lived basically in the same area. They used to go to the same doctor, the same hairdresser, nail salon. So they knew one another. And when I married Linda Hoffman, the Philadelphia Inquirer wrote, Bobby Rideau marries his longtime fan club president, Linda Hoffman. And we had to call them to say, no, you gotta put you gotta you gotta print a retraction. It's not my fan club president, it's another Linda Hoffman.
1: <laughs> How unusual is that?
0: Oh yeah, absolutely.
1: I mean you couldn't m- make that up, could you? No, a
0: matter of fact, that they lived in the same area, same area code with the telephone. And my wife, the other Linda, my wife, used to get phone calls. Linda would tell me later, people would call and they'd say, do you have the new Bobby Rydell cassette? And my wife said, no. Uh, you Linda Hoffman? Yes. And aren't you the president of the Bobby Rydell fan club? No. <laughs> <laughs> We met one night at an Italian restaurant with all the Italian guys. And this one girl was there and we talked and I'd like to, you know, we dated, uh, I think, for three years. And, you know, I would take her places. We would go to like uh, a place called Riviera Maya in Mexico, right right near Cancun, Puerto Rico. And we got along great, you know, so we finally got married wait a minute I gotta remember we're married 12 years now and Frankie Avalon and I were working uh, a hotel called the Orleans in Vegas got married to Linda Frankie and his wife Kay were there my drummer David was my best man and and the other Linda Hoffman was there as well <laughs> got married in the afternoon at a friend's place of, of mine uh, 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 Called the Bootlegger, so we went there for lunch. You know, everybody, so on and so forth. Mm. And that night, I was on stage with Frank. (laughs) As (laughs) you do, I got married. That was
1: (laughs) (laughs) when you were doing your touring years, and I think you went to Australia something like twenty-two times. You're you're America's teen idol, but were you surprised at how much the rest of the world Mm -hmm. loved you?
0: Oh my God, Louise! Absolutely. Matter of fact, there were three girls, and they lived in Melbourne. No matter where I worked, they came, and they'd always sit in the front row. They did my backgrounds. I would say it was swingin' school, and I go, "Yeah, yeah, yeah," go swingin' school, and they start, "La la 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 la." They did all of my background on every record that I do on the show, Wild One, Volare. And and I and I introduced them. I say, ladies and gentlemen, I'd like to introduce three crazies who are big fans, and they and they after I'm done, they throw confetti and uh, balloons go up in the air, you know. So, well, yeah, Australia is very near and dear to me, and um, weather, great food, great people, the whole nine yards. Working in the UK was absolutely wonderful. That's absolutely you, wonderful. That, that's
1: where you met the Beatles, isn't it? This was
0: 1963. I met the Beatles. When I did the Palladium, my God, that had to be, and I became very dear friends with Jack Parnell, drummer by the name of Kenny Clare, a marvelous, marvelous player. They used, you know, we used to go see him at Ronnie Scott's, you know, because he was a great jazz player and also a great big band drummer. When I recorded Forget Him in London, Kenny Clare was on the date playing brushes. Forget him Kenny Clare is playing forget him for me when he did things like Tony Bennett like Mimi. He's quite Russian. Forget him. He was traveling with Johnny Dankworth and Cleo Lane. And we met in Boston, at the Boston Logan Airport, and they were flying to Philadelphia to do a gig. My drummer, of course, who was a big fan of Kenny's, uh, we took him to dinner at an Italian restaurant, then we went back to my house, and we started playing all of his stuff. There was another guy, another great drummer by the name of Ronnie Stevenson. who We played played things when he was with Matt Monroe. My God, he said, you guys know more about me than I know about myself, you know, because we adore him. Uh, But getting back to what you're talking about, I was there with Ann-Margaret. We did a command performance for the Royal Family when Bye Bye Birdie came out. And I toured with Helen Shapiro, who I adore. And, yeah, and, you know, she's a marvelous singer. One night, we're on the bus, and there's a car in front of us. And she says, they are the Beatles. Now, this is 1963, Louise. So when she said, they are the Beatles, I started looking around the bus for cockroaches or something. I didn't know what the hell she was talking about. No, the God's honest truth. Bus stop. the car stopped, the guys come on. Of course, they knew me, and I figured... We're nice guys. They're just, you know, probably gigging around doing club dates or something and, you know, society type of thing. I go back home and now it's 1964 and I'm watching Ed Sullivan. Who's he introduced? The Beatles. God, I said, I met those guys.
1: Can you look back and oh think, God. well, those guys knew me. You were as much a hero to them as you yeah. became to, yeah. to others.
0: Oh, absolutely. And, uh, I, I, I really enjoyed a lot of the things that uh, they did. Yesterday, oh, my trouble seems so far away, you know. Not, you know, she loves you, yay, yeah, yay, yeah, yay, yeah, you know. <laughs>
1: not not every song has got yeah, 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 and whoa, whoa, whoa in it, has it? Oh, no,
0: no, of course not, <laughs> yeah, <right>. yeah. <laughs> But a lot of my songs were yeah, 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 whoa, whoa, whoa.
1: But that's what you wanted to steer steer yourself away from.
0: Not steer myself away from, just I can do other things.
1: Yes, yes.
0: Other than, whoa, whoa, yeah, yeah.
1: Yeah, sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You've spoken fondly about your wife and the devastation of her breast cancer di- diagnosis, which she initially beat but then it returned yes. as you say, but you weren't coping too well yourself.
0: Not when she passed, you know, and I i mean, when she passed, yeah, but like you said earlier, she was in remission for nine years. You know, we all figured, my God, honey, thank God, you know, God bless you. Yes. And then it came back, it came back, and it, you know, the lymph nodes and the kidney and the lungs, and oh, Jesus, it was terrible. After she passed away, um. I was a lonely guy. There was nobody to talk to, nobody to laugh with, nobody to cry with, nobody to have sex with. And I hit the bottle and I became an alcoholic. I kind of drowned my tears in vodka for a lot of years, which later on, 2012 to be exact, I had to have a new liver and a new kidney. I was never a heavy drinker. I, you know, you know, after a show, you have a dinner, you know, a, a cocktail. And that was, you know, and that, I was never really a happy drinker until she passed. And then my dear friend Vodka became very, very, very close to me.
1: So it started as a recreational pleasure.
0: Oh, yeah. yeah. Social, 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 you know.
1: Your appetite for alcohol grew as your body craved more.
0: Absolutely. Uh, I mean, uh, when I drank and I mean drinking, I would get up in the morning, whatever time I get up, and I would have to have like a double vodka on the rocks. And that would start, you know, somewhere around 8 9 o'clock in the morning. And I'd have 15, 20 of them before I went to bed. You know, when I went to bed, I just, boom, you know, collapsed, you know. But that was my daily, uh, my daily, my daily schedule. I drank so much and I became, I became an alcoholic, you know, to the point where I needed the transplant. And I remember seeing a doctor at a place called Lankanaw Hospital in Philadelphia. And he said to me, uh, this was 2010. He said, Bobby, if you don't stop drinking, you're going to be dead in two years. I figured, well, if I'm going to be dead in two years, I might as well have a ball. <laughs> you know, I mm. continued drinking. And then I went into renal failure and cirrhosis of the liver. And then I, I, I was lucky enough to be able to get uh, a new liver and a new kidney. Young lady... 21 years old her name julia she was hit by a car immediately pronounced brain dead which by the way is the only way you can get organs you have to be pronounced brain dead and to this day you know in my show try and impress upon the audience that how important it is to become an organ donor to the point where i say ladies and gentlemen as a favor to me the next time you apply for your driver's license Please become an organ donor because it truly is the gift of life. And I get a lot of applause, you know, from the audience, and and hopefully, you know, uh, that instills, you know, uh, upon people how important it is.
1: Were you drinking to hide emotional pain?
0: Yeah, oh, absolutely, absolutely. Married for, you know, thirty five years, yeah, and like I said. We've known one another. I was 15. She was 14. So like, that's like, you know, a lot of years. It's like 50 years out now, if you put it all together.
1: Were you aware that you had a drinking problem?
0: I guess I really didn't want to admit it to myself, you know.
1: Was it essential for you to have to drink every day?
0: Absolutely. Really? Absolutely. But I never drank. I never drank prior to hitting the stage. It was always straight on stage you know i was always sober i was you know right on spot on but after the show i get cockeyed
1: you would have been so brutally honest in in your autobiography how you would thank you go on stage and in between songs your banter became nonsensical you became irritable your speech became slurred but this was at a point where you'd stop drinking, but cirrhosis of the liver had started to develop.
0: There, what you know, when I said earlier that I, uh, I, 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 uh, I would never drink, you know, on uh, prior to a performance. But I think there was one night where I had a little bit too much before the show, and uh, I wasn't good at all. I mean, you know, I couldn't sing at all. Like you just said, the the speech was splur- uh, slurred. And there would be people in the audience hollering out, Bobby, do uh, um, uh, come fly with me or fly me to the moon. And I would just start saying, fly me to the moon and let me play my star." And I remember walking off stage and there was a guy in the wings and I collapsed in his arm. And uh, but that didn't, you know, uh, didn't affect me. You know, I, went, I was done with the show. I went to the room, you know probably drank a little bit more, collapsed, went to bed. But then I never, I never really drank after that. It it, it became to the point where a lot of, uh, uh, bookers didn't want to handle me because they knew that a hey, Rydell has a, you know, drinking problem. And you know, that, that really hindered, you know, uh, as far as, uh, Headlining and, you know, doing my stage act. And um, my manager at that time was a man by the name of Dick Fox. And, you know, he would call people and, you know, oh, you know, we don't know. Is he going to show up? Uh, is he going to be there? And if he is, is he going to be okay? You know, so on. When you uh, have cirrhosis of the liver and renal failure and you're lucky enough to get a new liver and a new kidney, I think that kind of like says, uh, That's enough. You had your fling, you know, now get your life together, get straight. No, I I remember we got a call from Jefferson Hospital, you know, because they put you on a list, you know, waiting for a a liver, a kidney. Mm. And uh, I was being wheeled into the OR and Linda was behind me. And I turned to her, I said, I was supposed to do a cruise in November. The, 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 The surgery was 2012, July. And I turned to Linda and I said, you know what, sweetheart, I'm going to make that cruise. I figured I got a 50-50 shot. I'm either going to die in the OR or if I come out, oh, let's, let's, let's see what happens from there, which I was lucky enough you know, to come out of it. And I had a surgeon, God bless him, his name was Cataldo Doria. He was Italian, like myself. He came originally from Italy. He studied in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania for three years. And fortunately, he was transferred to Philadelphia at Jefferson Hospital. And he was a wonderful surgeon. And we would speak Italian. I'd speak a little bit of broken Italian. He was real Italian. But I remember one other doctor after the surgery or prior to the surgery, he said, "Uh, Bobby, be prepared. Stay in the hospital after your surgery for like, possibly two, three months. Hey, okay sirrah, sera. Whatever will be, will be, you know. And I was in the hospital 10 days after the surgery, and Natal Dodoria came in and with the broken uh, English. He said, A Bob, and my wife was there, Linda. He says, A Bob, I think uh, you're going to go home in maybe two or three days. And I was. I was home. And my wife went, What? can't you keep them another couple of weeks? I got things to do. <laughs> I, I, I was home, excuse me. I was home 10 days after my surgery. So I think it was like the seventh day after the surgery when he said, I think maybe you go home with two or three days. And then, you know, fast forward six months after the surgery, I'm on stage in Las Vegas.
1: Unbelievable. Yeah.
0: And then uh, thank God, you know, after the liver and the kidney transplant, um, I rehearsed with a band in Philadelphia, a dear friend of mine who just passed away. His name was Luciosi. He was a trumpet player. His regular trade was a barber, but he was a really good trumpet player. And he had an 18-piece orchestra. And it was a place in Philly called the Cleft Club. It was a jazz club. And I called Louie. I said, this was after, you know, the double transplant, after I was feeling a little bit better. And I said to Louie, I said, Lou, I said, can you do me a favor and get your band together and I'll fly my drummer in from Chicago. I want to see if I can do my act. I want to see if I can do my show. And Dick Fox came that day and he was sitting with, with Linda. Yeah. And I started singing and everything, it came out like pow, you know, the voice was there. The band was cooking and everything was working. And Dick Fox turned to Linda. He said, he's amazing. He's absolutely amazing. And from there on out, you know, things started working again. You know, my, my, my first appearance after the double transplant was in, in Las Vegas, six months after the double transplant. Now, my stamina wasn't, you know, fantastic, but the chops, the voice was still there, you know, and I was straight again. You know, yes. <laughs> I was able to get up there and, and do an hour, you know.
1: Um, I wondered what advice you'd give to anyone who is struggling with an addiction, such as alcohol.
0: Yeah, you know, that is so hard to answer, Louise. You know, I I really don't know what to say. Um, you know, there are things, you know, like AA, you know, uh, Alcoholics Anonymous, uh, Anonymous, uh, if it helps, you know, wonderful. Mm. I don't know how... how You know, good it is calling up people when you have a problem and they walk kind of like walk you through it. But that's a toughie. You know, I'll tell you one thing. I'm a smoker, as you see. Mm. Okay. I started smoking when I was 10 years old. I'm now 79. Okay. Smoking is harder to give up than alcohol. I mean, you see me smoking. You see me smoking here, you know. But once you go through what I went through, and you get that second chance at life, then you know, hey, I've had my fill. Yeah. But I still smoke. <laughs> I, I wish I had that kind of advice, you know, mm. to tell, you know, people who are going through what I went through. And I, I really wasn't aware of it until later on, you know, where I heard stories about David Cassidy. And, you know, I just thought to myself, I said, holy Jesus, you know, I've been there, done that. You know, maybe it comes down to the point where they need a liver and they have cirrhosis of the liver or they have renal failure, which kind of wakes you up, you know. You
1: were really lucky that your body was able to accept them. So many people yeah. through the transplants <laughs> and there's a rejection.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, of course there's a rejection. But now, let me see, It's uh, this is 2021. The operation was... 2012 that's nine years of course you know I'll, I'll be taking rejection pills the rest of my life how long that's going to be yes. you know but uh and i think it all goes back to the surgeon as well Dordori, who was a marvelous marvelous surgeon I, I think that's an important quality when you're in the or you know and i was in the or for 22 23 hours yeah
1: you took a partial liver, didn't you? You
0: didn't take her? Yes, I did. Uh, I thought that I was uh, the main guy, you know. There was a little girl, her name is Saya. She was five years old. And <clears throat> she has had a problem uh, going back to when she was one, two years old. And I remember talking to a doctor uh, after, the, after the surgery, And I said, you know, I thought I was, you know, the number one, you know, recipient to go in, you know, for the transplant. He said, Bobby, you weren't even number 12. And I said, what? He said, I'll tell you how lucky you are. There were 12 people waiting for a liver transplant. 12 people turned down a partial liver. 12 people turned down a partial liver, which boosted me up Mm. on the list. And I remember when Jefferson called, and my wife, who was a nurse, Linda, for 36 years, he says, I don't care what they say, you take it, because you don't have any other chance. This is your shot. So when 12 people turned down a partial liver, I said, my God, how, how lucky was I? Are you kidding me? Little Asia, she's now going on to, I think, 11 12 years old, oh, and she's great. And uh, we split Julia's liver. Asaya got 25%. I got 75% of of the liver. And as you know, the liver is the only organ in your body that grows. Yes. So now she has a full liver. I have a full liver now.
1: Sometimes things happen for a reason, and out of a terrible tragedy
0: Hopefully.
1: comes... You know what?
0: You know what? I, I you know what? I thought uh, being wheeled into the OR, I always thought that it was some kind of a miracle that happened to the point where God spoke to me. He said, "You know what, Bobby? I really don't want you yet. You got mm-hmm. other things to do. I'm going to give you a little bit more time." Yeah. I honestly believe that, and I'm, I'm religious to a certain point. I'm Catholic. I was an altar boy for five years when I was younger. So, you know, I I have a lot of faith in, you know, my religion. And I truly think that, that it was a miracle the way it happened.
1: Mm. People come into your
0: life Absol- for a reason. Absolutely.
1: Linda came into your
0: Linda, life for a reason. Abs- I was just going to say that. You're right. Yes. And after, you know. I went through everything, and like I said earlier, what a great caregiver she became. She was absolutely wonderful. Uh, Two years ago, I fell down the steps in my house. I was going from the kitchen to what they call the man cave, and I was holding a, a plastic plate of pickles. I love pickles. And I was walking down three steps. My right leg went up in the air, and bang, I came down and I broke my femur, the biggest bone in your body. That was two years ago. And I remember Linda saying, you know, after uh, I had the surgery to fix the femur, she said, Bobby, your transplant, your liver, your kidney, your heart, this is going to be the toughest recovery you'll ever go through. And she was right. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. I mean, whoa. Well, it was really tough, yeah. Even to this day, you know, I, it, it's it's kind of a, a problem, you know, to walk around a hell of a lot, you know. Matter of fact, now on stage, like I'll come out and I'll do my opening tune, whatever that may be, you know, and then I sit because I can't stand for that long. And the people don't care. They just, hey, Bob, you got to sit, sit, you know, just sing your songs and we'll be happy, you know, so that's, yeah, that's great. The fans
1: yeah. are still just as important to you now as as when you were 17,
0: 18, 19? Yeah, 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 God bless them, you know, they're still there. Going on to what, 61, 62 years now? Oh, Oof.
1: it's outrageous.
0: It is outrageous, yeah.
1: Is it having someone who believes in you and having someone who unconditionally loves you that pulls you through?
0: For sure. Oh, yeah, for sure. And, you know, thank God, Louise, Linda was a nurse for 36 years and she became one of the greatest caregivers you can ever possibly hope for. She was absolutely wonderful. And yeah, she she pulled me through that unconditional love. Yeah, I get that from my dog. too. (laughs) Yeah, Bella. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. that gives me unconditional love.
1: <laughs> oh. We have to love ourselves first before we can allow other people to.
0: Absolutely. I mean, you got to really look deep inside, you know, to find out, you know, what the hell kind of a person am I? Yes. And, you know, I'm, you know, being honestly sincere, you know, I think I'm a pretty good guy. I think mm-hmm. I'm a pretty damn good guy.
1: I can tell that you're a good guy. You've got a good heart.
0: Thank you ever so much. Yeah. Appreciate it, Louise.
1: You underwent bypass surgery.
0: <laughs> that was a year later. Oh. That was 2013. Uh, I, uh, my uh, uh, my cardiologist, uh, his name was Dr. Sokol, and, and it still is Dr. Sokol, and I, he wanted me to take, you know, tests. So, okay, he reads the test, and I'm sitting with Linda. He says, uh Bobby, your LAD is 99% blocked and one other artery is 88% blocked. And I, and I told the doctor, I said, I don't know, doc. I feel fine. Matter of fact, I, I got to leave for, uh, uh, where the hell was I going? Somewhere in Louisiana, uh, Baton Rouge, mm-hmm. Baton Rouge, Louisiana. They had casinos down there. I said, I got to leave for Baton Rouge tomorrow. He said, you ain't going nowhere. You're checking in right now. <laughs> and that was a Wednesday. I checked in Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. I was just laying in bed. And I told my wife, I said, Linda, come over here and get me the hell out of here. They're not doing anything. She said, I'm not coming. You're staying here." And then Monday is when I went uh, for the uh, double bypass. I remember I had, you know, I, I was in Buffalo. And prior to going on stage, I got like a a pain that went down my jaw, my neck, and and like a little sting. Mm. I didn't think anything of it. I went on stage. I did my show. And that's when I went, you know, uh, back home and, you know, just a normal, you know, checkup.
1: When you went back on to stage in, in Las Vegas after your double transplant, were you nervous that first night?
0: Oh, absolutely. I mean, I get nervous before I go on anyway, you know. That first night, waiting in the wings for the intro, and I'm thinking to myself, you know, although I rehearsed with the band and sounded good, this is for real. Now you're working in front of a lot of people with the real live musicians. And I was just, oh, holy Jesus, I don't know what's going to come out. Am I going to be able to do this and do that? And it's just amazing, Louise, you know, when it says, you know, ladies and gentlemen, we're proud to present the singing star of our show, Bobby Rydell. Music, and I come walking out, boom, and I'm there. You know, the adrenaline just kicks in. Yeah.
1: You are going back on stage again?
0: Yeah, well, yeah. Matter of fact, I I already did uh, two days in Orlando, Florida. Uh, it was, uh, the 18th and 19th of Florida. Mm-hmm. And now I'm off till, uh, July and I fly to Buffalo, New York. And there's a theater there called the Riviera theater. And from, from August, things start opening up again, you know? So there's a lot of, you know, and if people want to, you know, find out where we, you know, I'll be, or where our show, the golden boys with Avalon and Fabian, Yes. You just go to com and it'll show you all of the tour dates that are coming up. And thank God there's quite a few. There goes Bella. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Can you believe that the three of you, Frankie Avalon, Fabian and Bobby Rydell, are still rocking in the aisles?
0: Well, you know what? When we started this show back in 1985, I mean, we did, I forget how many one-nighters, we, 55, 60 one-nighters in a row. Mm. and I remember because, you know, Fabian only lived a half a block away from me in South Philadelphia on 11th Street, and Frankie lived 9th Street, two blocks away, but I didn't know Fabian until things started happening for him and me in the business, although he only lived a half a block away, so, you know, during the tour, I turned to Frank. I said, you know what, Frank? I said, this is really fantastic. You know, what a lot of fun this is. I said, but how long is this going to last? A year, two years tops, it's over. 1985, we're going into 2022, we're still doing the show. And it's better today than it was back in 1985. Frecky has a great line. He would say on stage, look at the three of us. Three guys from South Philadelphia, we used to hang out on the street corner together. And now we're hanging out on stage together. (laughs) And you know, that's what it is. It's like, we're just having fun.
1: That's what keeps you so young.
0: I think so. I, I, I think so. I remember there was an interview with some lady in the UK, I think in London with Dean later, later on in years. And she said, she said to Dean, what, what keeps you going? You know, what keeps you going and, and entertaining all these many years. Mm-hmm. And Dean Martin said, I just like to have fun. And that's what I want. I want to have fun Mm, you know absolutely forget the singing and this and that and the jokes and the impersonations and so it's fun
1: well i think when you've been so close to the edge and almost fallen off it yeah and you're given
0: oh for sure
1: it makes yeah a
0: second chance bobby rydell teen idol on the rocks a tale of second chances
1: yes when you look back on your career how do you measure success
0: How do I measure success? I just think that from a very early age, I guess this was something that I've always wanted to do since three years old. Something that I've always wanted to do. I didn't know it at the time at three years old, but as I grew older, you know, it was something that was destined for me. And, you know, uh, I look back on everything that I have done and hopefully things that will come in the future that how blessed I am and how lucky I am to be able to do what I truly love to do. That's being able to get up on stage and to once again have fun. Say hello to everybody in the UK for me and hopefully God's fears the very not too distant future. I'll be able to come to the UK and, you know, do some shows. That that would be great. Of course, I haven't been back since, oh, my God, you know, the early 60s.
1: You've not been back since?
0: Well, the last time was 63, uh, touring with Helen Shapiro. That was well, the last time I was in the UK. Your revisit is long overdue. Yeah, I would love to come back to the UK. Oh,
1: Absolutely. People still love you, you know.
0: Oh, wait, well, wait, wait, no, no, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. I was there in the 80s. I worked the talk of the town, and I was there for two weeks at the talk of the town. Yeah, yeah, it was great. Guess who came to see me when I was on stage? You know, now, the the talk of the town, Japanese, German, English, Swedish, this, that, the other thing, Mm. and Margaret, but she came to see me, and I introduced her, and she got like a a polite round of applause, and I, I figured wow, I said, you know, what happened to, whoa, yay, hi, you know, you know, because it was such a different mix of, you know, people.
1: You were in a film together, weren't you, Bye Bye Birdie?
0: Yeah, Bye Bye Birdie. Yeah, Bye Bye Birdie, great musical, 1963. And, uh, and we became, and we're still friends. We still talk to one another every couple of months or so. Hey, how you doing, i fine, you know, blah, 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 blah. And I re- she came back to the dressing room after the show, and I was in my tuxedo, and my drummer David, who's been with me for forty-two, going on to forty-three years, I said, "Excuse me, Anna, I'm going to go change." And Dave was in the little area with Ann Margaret, going like this. He he, he, couldn't, he, he couldn't talk. She had on like a a tight sweater, <laughs> and Dave was just thinking to myself, thinking to himself. God, I can't wait till Bobby comes to hell out. Of it. <laughs> yeah. But that Yeah. The last time was in the 80s. Oh, Who was the girl who had, she was a good singer back then. And she covered one of my records and she had a TV show. Oh, God. Yeah. she. Uh, uh, my second record was a song called We Got Love. Yeah. And she covered it. And she had a hit on it. Oh, God, why can't I remember her name? She had a big TV show. She was a big star. Uh, oh, I got a good memory, but it's short. <laughs> <laughs> we got- yeah. She had a TV show. That I, uh, we, 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 did, uh, we did a song together.
1: Alma Kogan.
0: Alma Kogan. Thank you ever so much. <laughs> Alma Kogan. Yeah.
1: <gasps> She had that really husky voice, didn't she?
0: Yeah, uh, she was great. We got along really well, yeah. really well together. There was one other drummer who was you know, on, on the TV show with the orchestra. His name was Phil Seaman, which was a great drummer. I don't know if you ever know the name. But years and years and years ago, mm. Jack Parnell, Phil Seaman was in the pit playing drums, and they were doing West Side Story. Now, Phil, like me, drank a hell of a lot. used to have vodkas like i don't know how many in the pit right with his dog with his dog so now it comes to the end of the first half and you know it's supposed to be 12 o'clock and a gong rings so the curtains is coming down and there's no gong right and jack parnell goes phil phil the gong, the gong." he gets up from his drum stool He hits the gong, boom, and he turns to the audience and says, dinner is now being served. (laughs) (laughs) Phil Seaman, a great, great, great jazz drummer in the UK, man. But, you know, he turned around right to the front row because he was in the pit. Dinner is now being served. (laughs) Oh, man. Yeah.
1: (sighs) God, isn't it wonderful to be able to look back and, and laugh? Yeah,
0: you know, that's it's like the old story, like a guy standing on the corner and there was a hippie standing next to him, you know, and the guy turns to the hippie and he says, excuse me, he says, but do you know how to get to Carnegie Hall? And the hippie says, yeah, man, practice. <laughs> practice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, man practice. Oh. That's how you get the Carnegie Hall.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and that's how you become a world star.
0: Yeah. <laughs>
1: <laughs> just look back at the five-year-old Robert, what advice would you give him?
0: Oh God, that's another one that's tough to answer. I know, you know, if you have any talent within you whatsoever, you know, just to nurture your craft work as much as you possibly can. I don't care if you're making a dollar a night or $5 a night, <laughs> Just to be able to get out there to do, to do what you do and to nurture and to learn, you know, uh, because once you sit back and you think you've got it all, then you're, you got you got a problem. So just keep, just keep working, mm-hmm. dancing lessons, vocal lessons, you know, acting lessons, do everything that you possibly can and do it well.
1: And read your book and you'll learn so much about and what it's like <laughs> to be idolized by millions and to come...
0: Well, thank you, Louise. That's so sweet.
1: ...and come, come through the toughest challenges that life can throw at you. Do you want to be remembered as Bobby Rydell Teenage Idol or Bobby Rydell All-Round Entertainer?
0: That's never... You know what? I think I've always said this uh, to a lot of people and and hopefully th- this is the way they remember me when i'm long gone you know bobby Rydell passed away at such and such an age the year such and such a year and on the tomb it reads bobby Rydell. he was a good guy who had a lot of fun and i think that's the way i'd like to be remembered
1: <laughs> i want to thank you bobby for being so brutally honest with me here and talking about your life
0: absolutely my pleasure Absolutely my pleasure, Louise. Thank you.
1: Well, I hope you continue to build many more memories with your Linda and your music.
0: Thank you ever so much. And I certainly hope the same. Yeah. It's been wonderful. Thank you.
1: Well, thank you for your time.
0: And it's been a pleasure. And once again, please say hello for, for me, for all of the fans.
1: Good luck to the Eagles.
0: Thank you. Thank you very much. Looking forward to a new season. Stay well. God bless. Take care. Be safe.
1: You can find more information about Bobby and all his touring dates by visiting his website, BobbyRydell.com. And if you've enjoyed this episode of the David Cassidy Connections, don't forget to like, subscribe and leave a review.